Good morning and welcome to our adult Bible class on the rise and falls of Joseph. We have talked about three different stages in his life where he was a dreamer, a prisoner, and now a ruler. Just to give a little bit of an overview of what we've talked about so far, Joseph has gone through many risings and fallings, many ups and downs, good times and bad. And his Fallings are not due to any necessarily sinful deed or wickedness that he's performed, but foolishness. He makes naive decisions. He doesn't really anticipate the consequences of his actions. And so when he does them, people respond very negatively and put him into really bad spots. The, uh, the story right after Joseph is sold into slavery, we saw this side-by-side -side story of Judah, his older brother, uh, sinning um, and being kind of caught in the act, as it were, uh, contrasted with Joseph's righteousness that actually leads to more suffering for him. We see that Joseph is on the rise, morally speaking, while his brothers are failing. They are um, actually doing sinful things while Joseph is doing the righteous thing. We see that while Joseph is in prison, he is faced with this dilemma of this baker and this cupbearer, um, who, both of whom have dreams that Joseph interprets, one leading to the cupbearer's uh, vindication and the, bake, the baker's death. When the baker is executed by Pharaoh, that opens up a vacancy in the quote-unquote chief baker position in Pharaoh's court, and so Joseph seems like a natural fit for that. When the cupbearer remembers what Joseph does, Joseph is invited to Pharaoh's court in order to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And just at that time, Joseph happens to say, well, just so you know, your dreams mean that you're going to go through seven years of abundance, and that's going to be great for the kingdom of Egypt, but then after that, things are not going to be so great. You're going to have seven years of famine that are going to make you totally forget uh, the abundance of the prior seven years. So right at that time, Pharaoh sees this man before him who can interpret his dreams in a way that none of the other court officials or magicians can. And so Pharaoh says, you know, who's an obvious uh, person to fill this vacancy left by the chief baker is Joseph. Joseph ascends to the second to second in command in Egypt, and God blesses Egypt through Joseph's planning. His suffering, his up and down life, the good times and the bad prepared him for what Egypt goes through because they're going to go through good times for seven years and then plummet to seven bad years. Joseph is the perfect person for the job, and God was preparing him the entire way for just that role. Now, everything seems to be going good for Joseph at this point. He, um, he marries an Egyptian wife. He has two Egyptian sons. He even gets an Egyptian name. He's second in command in Egypt. He is providing food for starving Egyptians. He is the man, but he says and thinks that he's forgotten his father's household. He's kind of put them in the back burner. He doesn't think about them anymore. He forgets them. But that's not true because Joseph's brothers come for a few visits. We talked last week about how they go on these journeys back and forth between the famine in Canaan and the prosperity and abundance 
in Egypt, and they keep going back and forth. And Joseph is often portrayed as someone who is test, uh, uh, tricking them and deceiving them and manipulating them and getting a little bit of fun out of messing with them and pranking them. I don't think that's an accurate description of what Joseph is doing. Joseph, the last time he saw them, was being sold into slavery by them. Of course, he doesn't trust them. Of course, he doesn't have to believe what they say. These are not necessarily trustworthy men. He needs to know that their character has changed. And by the way, it's a little suspicious that 10 brothers have come from Canaan when there are 11 brothers. Where is Benjamin? All these questions are, of course, going through Joseph's mind. Of course, he's going to have issues trusting these guys. So he puts them through three tests to make sure they have changed. And he's right to do so. And they pass the test, leading to a reunion. Joseph reveals himself. They cry. They weep over the news that Joseph is actually alive. And they are reconciled to each other. But the dad, Jacob, is back in Canaan. And they need to save him as well. They aren't just going to leave him out to dry. So this next story is about bringing Jacob and the rest of the family down to Egypt. In chapter 45, we read, So the sons of Israel did this, going up to Canaan. Jo Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh had commanded. He gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them, he gave new clothing. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. He sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said, don't quarrel on the way. In other words, don't screw this up. This is going to be good. Go get dad, bring him back, and we will have uh, a ball. We will celebrate the fact that we're all back together. In other words, do not mess this up, guys. Then... They go up out of Egypt, come to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler of all Egypt. Now, remember, Jacob doesn't necessarily trust them at this point. He doesn't, and he has good reasons not to trust them. So, of course, Jacob is stunned, and he doesn't believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said, and when Jacob sees the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. There's this beautiful moment that when, when Jacob sees all of this, he knows that they can't be lying about this. They're carrying all this silver. Eleven brothers have returned. It doesn't make any sense. They couldn't have sold any of their brothers into slavery again. They're, they're all back together. The only thing that makes sense is that this is a gift. This is approval from the ruler of Egypt. This is proof, convincing proof that Joseph is alive. This is just like the many convincing proofs that the gospel authors talk about with Jesus. Clearly, Joseph is not dead. And Israel says, and I love that his God-given name is used right here. Israel says, I am convinced my son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is a beautiful moment. When Jacob lost Joseph, when he thought Joseph was ripped to shreds by animals, he couldn't stop mourning. Judah himself said that Jacob's soul is connected, attached to his 
sons from Rachel. He loves Joseph. He loves Benjamin. And when he loses them, his life is closely bound up with these boys' lives. But when he finds out that they are alive, when he finds out that they're well, his spirit revives. He is made alive again by the good news of his son who is not dead but alive again. And after going through 13 years of mourning from the time Joseph was 17 to now Joseph is about 30, this is the 14th year and there is good news and jubilee. So Israel decides I'm going to go and I'm going to see Joseph. He set out with all that was his and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. This story is actually bringing something, that the story to a full circle from 20 chapters ago. Isaac was once in Beersheba, and God appeared to him. We're told in verse 23 of that chapter that the Lord appeared to Isaac at night, and God said in that moment, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. And Isaac built an altar and offered sacrifices there and worshiped. And now, 20 chapters later, his son Jacob is appeared to by the Lord at night, and God says, I'm the God of your father, Isaac. This is so crucial to understand the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is a chain of divine grace that moves from Abraham to his son and then to his grandson and then to the whole family of Israel and the 12 tribes of Jacob. God has clearly been the cause, the moving factor of this story, all the way from, from Abraham being chosen to Isaac being chosen to Jacob being chosen to Joseph's ascent to Egypt. All of it, God has been moving slowly but surely. And you see the connections between grandfather, father, and son. When God appeared to Abraham to tell him to sacrifice his son Isaac, he said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am, which is exactly what God does here. He spoke to Israel and says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. In that moment, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, but then protects his son and offers a, a, a sacrifice instead of the son. Now, Jacob is going down to Egypt. He's worried about what's going to happen there. He's not sure about what's going to happen there, but God reassures him, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you up out of there. Even if you go, don't worry. I will bring you out. Now, decades ago for Jacob, this is a, this is a really big deal. Being, being spoken to by God, while it, it seems like in Scripture this happens a lot, when you actually read the stories, you realize how rarely God speaks to his people. In the sense that there's tons of time that elapses between God's appearing to his people. 
So decades before this story, Jacob stole the birthright and blessing from his brother Esau. He ran away because his brother was trying to kill him. He was all out in the zone. He was out on the lamb and God appeared to him. He has a vision of a stairway of angels ascending and descending on it. And God continues his covenant with Jacob. Now think about how his story has now come full circle. He's all by himself. He's alone. And God appears to him when he's kind of in this frightful moment. And now again, he's headed down to Egypt. Egypt hasn't always been good to Jacob's family and God reassures him again. You see all these connections with Jacob's own past, but as well as his father's past, as well as his grandfather's past shows that God is faithful. God is always keeping his covenant. He's sure to fulfill his words. Now, after this story, after God appears to Jacob and reassures him, I'm going to protect you, I'll be with you, don't worry, you should go down to Egypt, I'm going to, you and your son are going to reunite, then there is a genealogy. And for Christians and for readers of the Bible in general, typically genealogies bore us. But the placement is actually really interesting because sometimes we're given a genealogy, we skip over it if we're being honest, and then the story picks up at the end of that genealogy. But a genealogy placed earlier in Joseph's story actually would have given away the whole story. We would know who lives and who dies. But now after seeing Joseph come through this entire uh, very eventful life, after we see Simeon and Benjamin also protected, we know these three sons are alive. And now we can read the genealogy in its fullness. And the beautiful thing about the genealogy is it's actually separated by two geographies. So there are 66 members of the family of Jacob in Canaan, and then there are four members of Israel in Egypt, Joseph, his wife, and his two sons. And 66 and four make 70. So when Jacob comes down from Canaan into Egypt and all 70 of his family are there, there's a fullness there. This genealogy is saying the whole family has arrived. There's this big family reunion. They're all together and there's a fullness there. Now, Jacob sends Judah ahead of himself to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. Now, they've heard that uh, the, the Israelites are going to live in this kind of land apart from the rest of the Egyptians, so they ask for directions. When they arrive there, Joseph has his chariot made ready and goes to Goshen to meet his father. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself you are still alive. Finally, after 13 years, this father and son have this beautiful reunion together. Now, when Jacob thought Joseph was dead, he says, I, want, I would rather be dead. But the beautiful thing is now he's ready to die. He's actually come to peace with his old age and his death. There is closure and Joseph himself will be there. Again, we're seeing Jacob's story after all of these years come to fruition, come to this beautiful full circle. And he knows his son 
is alive. He knows he's not ripped apart by animals out in the wilderness all to die alone. He knows now that he can die in peace. And this is actually has a beautiful parallel in Luke chapter 2. Simeon was promised before he died he was going to see Jesus. He was going to see the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And he gets really, really old. And then once he finally sees Jesus, he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. This is the famous Nuke Demitis story. Simeon is this old man who has waited and waited and waited and waited to see God's son. And now Jacob, this other old man, has waited and waited and waited and waited to see his own son. And they both now accept death. They say, I can die now. I have closure because I have seen the son. For Simeon, he gets to see God's son. But for Jacob, he gets to see his own son. When they meet together, Israel says, Nuke Demitis, you may dismiss your servant in peace. Now, this next part of the story kind of seems strange, but I actually think it fits with the rest of the narrative we've been reading. Joseph says to his brother and to his father, his brothers and his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds. They tend livestock. They have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. And when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what's your job, what's your occupation, you should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Now, this might seem really, really strange. Why is this random detail being kind of plugged into the story? There's this beautiful family reunion, and then jo Joseph is like, hey guys, you, you have to tell them that you're shepherds. This last comment is, is especially confusing. Why do Egyptians care about shepherds? There's actually an opposition from the very first pages of Scripture between farmers and shepherds. And there's a lot of different theories about why that is. But regardless, there is an opposition. Cain was a farmer who worked the land, and he killed his brother Abel, uh, who was a shepherd. Uh, their descendants, Jabel and Tubal-Cain, which both rhymes with their ancestors, uh, were you know keepers of livestock and a welder of bronze and iron. Esau was the was the hunter who was hairy and his his uh, he was almost like an animal himself. Um, Jacob was a mild man in tents. We see these kind of opposition between uh, the the uh, farmer and the shepherd. We see the the strength and the weakness. There's a kind of opposition. Uh, in different occupations from the beginning. And so what is being set up here is not just an, a personal opposition between farmers and shepherds, but an opposition between nations. There's going to be the nation of Israel within the land of Egypt, particularly in the land of Goshen, and there's going to be opposition. This is a warning sign that in coming chapters, once we start reading the book of Exodus, opposition will truly take place between these two nations. And so Joseph is doing multiple things at the same time. First of all, he's trying to maintain their identity. He is retaining who they are as a shepherding people. They are not assimilating into the Egyptian culture. But more importantly, he's protecting them. He's giving them their own land so that they don't become detestable in the eyes of the Egyptians. This is another instance of Joseph's 
wisdom. He wants to assure safety and preservation for his family. If there is this opposition, and if that's his interpretations of the way that Egyptians view shepherds, he needs to make sure his family comes down, that they have all the resources they want. They, have, they brought all their livestock. They're not going to take from the Egyptians. They have their own land. They have their own practices. Why don't you just leave them alone? It's a kind of uh, haven or, or kind of almost like a, uh, a separation to make sure that the Egyptians don't uh, view them with animosity. Now, why does this chapter matter? Chapter 46 might kind of seem like a throwaway chapter. Yes, there's the family reunion, uh, but, but why, why is it so important that the father is brought down to Egypt? Well, it, this chapter is not underwhelming. This makes sense. Egypt is where the food is. But more importantly, they need to reconcile as brothers, but also between the brothers and the father. This is so crucial to understand. Of all the dysfunction in the family of Jacob, it's clear that the brothers were in bad standing with their father. Now, Joseph has forgiven them for what they've done to him. He's restored them as his brothers. He's also saved his father from a famine in Canaan by himself. But now Joseph has brought the whole household together. He's provided for all of them. He is the beloved son who not only reconciles himself to his brothers, but reconciles his brothers to his father. And I think there's a beautiful way that this mirrors and has so much similarity to what Jesus does for us. Of course, Jesus is the reason why we're justified before our Heavenly Father. We're reconciled to Him, but we're also reconciled to each other. Jesus doesn't just save isolated, autonomous individuals. When you become a Christian, you're not only made right before God, you're made right with the family of Christ. You're united to your fellow Christians. We aren't saved um, alone. We are saved into a community, the body of Christ, which exists before us, which exists uh, way before we ever come along. So Joseph saves his brothers, reconciles them to himself, and reconciles them to the Father. Jesus uh, reconciles us to, the, to our Heavenly Father as well as each other. The second beautiful truth of this story is that God is clearly the patient Lord of history. He is the one guiding the whole story of Genesis. You can read lots of verses that don't mention God, that don't say the word the Lord. You, you can think that God is um, hidden or absent, but God is the thread through each of these chapters. These chapters wouldn't make any sense without God guiding the whole thing. We see that Jacob's life comes full circle in and of itself with the, the vision of the, of the stairway of angels ascending and descending all the way to the vision at night before he goes down to Egypt. We see also kind of a full circle with Isaac and Abraham. Those, the way that God appeared to them is the way that God appears to Jacob. God is there from the beginning, and he's with his people the whole time. He is the one guiding the story, and he's keeping this family together. He is the one who is protecting all of these people, which means that it's not of their making 
uh, that, that this whole story is so good. Clearly, it's not human ingenuity. We can say that, yes, Joseph became more wise throughout this story, but he wasn't always wise. This family makes a lot of naive and foolish decisions. It should, naturally speaking, this family should fall apart, and it should be broken, and these people should leave each other behind, but they don't. God keeps them together. It's also not their righteousness that saved them. It's definitely not that. They deceive and manipulate and lie and cheat and steal and even sell each other into slavery. It is not their righteousness or goodness or their good works that, that saves this family. It is clearly God's guidance the whole time such that they're at the right time in the right place with exactly what they need to do what God requires of them. In fact, God is constantly overcoming their rivalry, their distrust, their violence, their lives, and their deceit. God is, is like playing four-dimensional chess. He is so wise and so cunning that he outmaneuvers them all. Each time they think they're supplanting God's will, he's always overturning them. He is doing exactly what he wants, planning far ahead and beyond their comprehension. And that's what's beautiful about this chapter. Yeah, it, it just kind of seems like Jacob is going down to Egypt because that's where the food is. But ultimately, this is, this is about God's mercy on this family, that despite all of their wickedness, despite all of the reasons why they should not be a, a family that's together, why they should be broken apart, why, why, why they shouldn't have what they need, God provides for them. God keeps them together. God reunites them. God reconciles them. And he uses them despite all of their shortcomings. That's the good news of this chapter in the story of Joseph. Yes, it's, it's a, mostly about Jacob's trip down to Egypt, but it's about so much more than that. And it gives us an image of the church. The church is not just where a bunch of isolated individual Christians happen to gather on Sunday morning. The church is not only reconciled to God, but we're reconciled to each other. That's why it's beautiful when Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor, fe uh, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. We're not just... We don't just have a basis for a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We have a basis of relationship for each other. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the good news of this chapter in the story of Joseph.